All right, are you ready? Let's go to Matthew 5. Matthew 5 in our Bibles for the blessed life. Matthew chapter 5. This is the, this is the first sermon of Jesus. It's the Beatitudes. First sermon that's recorded. And he starts with eight blessings. We're in number five this week, which is verse seven. So with our Bible in hand, let's pray. Lord, we hold in our hands a very um, privileged thing, a copy of the scriptures in our own language, uh, in our own vernacular, quite frankly. Not just the language we get, but we really do get contemporary versions. And this is a privileged place to be in history, to be able to handle your communication to us. So may we take it to heart, we pray today. And not just analyze it to see if we're going to obey, but read it with eyes that want to heed the instruction and take it to heart and live it out because we know you are the anchor to our soul. You are our source of joy. You are the point of forgiveness. You are the destiny, you are the place of destiny for us for heaven. Whom have I in heaven but thee, the psalmist said, and besides thee, there's nothing else that we would ever desire. So, Lord, may that be our desire today, just to seek you well through your word and take it to heart and put it into motion. And we pray this in the name of Christ our Savior. And the church says, Amen. Amen. Well, a couple weeks ago, Wanda and I were at a football game, high school football game, and uh, we were having a good time. Our team was winning, ridiculously so. Um, They would march down the field and... uh, would score at will. I mean, just score at will. And of course, I'm explaining to her everything. She knows football. Everybody around me knows football, but I still need to explain it. Because I grew up playing football. It's one of the reasons I went to high school was so I could play football. Some of you are laughing, but that's more true than I would like to admit. I was on a team. I played uh, both offense and defense. I played uh, uh, right guard on offense. Sometimes I did the long snap for punts, Um, but then I played defensive uh, linebacker, and we had an awesome team, incredible team, really, really good team. Unfortunately, the yearbook says we were five and five, but we know, as we look back, it was closer to 10 and zip. I mean, we know the truth about how good our team was. Well, so when Wanda and I were at this game, this team was just, the team we were rooting for was just marching down field scoring, marching down field scoring. By the time we get to halftime, it's, it's like 33 to nothing. I mean, we might as well go home. This game's over. And, um, we, you know, there's halftime, there's a band, and it was enjoyable. And some of our kids in South Potomac are playing in the band, and we're cheering them on and having a good time. Well, second half opens up, and our team gets the ball second half. And, and what does the quarterback do? He sees something in the defense, and so he steps up. You've seen a quarterback do this. Steps up, yells a different play, backs up, takes the hike, and then throws the bomb down the field and goes 75 yards for a touchdown. I mean, this thing's a touchdown. And now I can hardly clap because now it's no longer 33 to nothing. It's 39. It's headed to 40 to nothing. This is getting ridiculous. And I'm thinking to myself, yay, team. And I'm really thinking, have some mercy on their poor souls. I mean, show some kindness and compassion. Are, at 33, is that not enough points? Do we have to keep throwing the long bomb here? 
And sure enough, as soon as that quarterback came off the field, the coach said, come here. You know, you see him have that little come to Jesus talk, you know. <laughs> I told you. And just like I remember it in high school. And they played the rest of the game running and putting in some other players and checking out the second string. And it was a good thing. And we still won with plenty of room. I mean, it was still, but, 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 the, but the mercy killing was a little quicker because we weren't passing the bomb anymore. And mercy that day began to rule. I say that because here's our verse for the day. Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Matthew 5, 7. Now you say it with me. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Matthew 5, 7. The illustrations of Jesus in this are numerous, more than we can count. They just abound. One day, uh, Jesus was healing sick people. The day ran out, became evening. The sick people kept coming. He kept healing with mercy in his eyes and his hands and in his voice. Never a moment of impatience. Never roll the eyes. Never hurry up. Let's get this thing over with. No. He kept healing as long as they kept coming. He stopped a funeral procession once and raised the young man who had died, raised him back to life. And he blessed not only the young man, but also his mother that day. When confronted with a case of adultery, Jesus went right to the heart of the issue. And he demonstrated, uh, when others would demonstrate judgment, he demonstrated judgment just, just mixed with some mercy. He knew the woman was guilty, but he also knew that if she were given an opportunity, she would turn and turn better for a better future. And on another occasion, parents would bring their children to Jesus. And of course, the disciples in the management side of this campaign said, no, no, he's too busy for the little people. Send them away. And Jesus said, no, let the little children come to me. And he showed them with mercy and he gave them time and attention. I, I like to think of it like Kids coming up and sitting on your lap and he messed up their hair and they messed up his and they just had a good time. All throughout our Lord's life, we see mercy-infused uh, moments of real-life challenges on the part of Jesus. Jesus seemed to be drawn to places that needed mercy. And he never seemed to run out. And that's this fascinating part about mercy. The more you give out, the more God gives to you. The more you use up, Blessed are the merciful. Why? Because they get more mercy. God gives them more mercy. God gives them more mercy. So what does mercy mean? Well, the scholars tell us mercy means to, to feel sympathy when someone else is in misery, especially sympathy manifest in an act. So this is more than a feeling. It's an act. It's not just thinking kind thoughts about someone. It's actually living it out. It's, it's an active kind of compassion. When we talk about the blessings of Matthew 5, there are eight of them all together, but there are two groups of four. We've just finished the first four, which are very attitudinal. Now we're on to number five, and what these next four are going to do is they're going to parallel the first four, and as they do, what we're going to learn is this. Jesus was all concerned about the heart, but now he's applying those heart issues to the next four. And now, this, these parallel blessings of the passage, he's saying this is what mercy looks like. Sometimes we read this, we think, oh, I know what that means. That means if I'm nice, they'll be nice. That's not true. I've been nice and people just cut me off. Have you ever had that? You're nice, you go, I've been nice, been nice, been nice. And when they, they just cut me, cut me, cut me, cut me. 
And I go, I'm going to stop being nice. And that's when we cut the flow of mercy. Sometimes it will work for a day, but in Jesus' day, it never worked. The Roman Empire was known for its power, strength, heavy-handed influence. They would just run over those words when Jesus said them. The Roman Empire was, was known for this heavy-handedness. Anything, anything that looked like mercy was viewed as a kind of weakness. So thinking, oh, I'll be merciful, they'll be merciful back. No, that didn't happen. You know what? That's not the intent of this text either. The intent of the text is to say when you are merciful, God gives you more mercy. It doesn't mean the other people are going to be merciful. It means God will be merciful to you, which is way, way better, trust me, on this one. A common repeated phrase in the scripture, grace, mercy, and peace. I'm pulling it up from 2 Timothy chapter 1, but it, it happens in other passages. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. Those are all related terms. Grace, mercy, peace. But grace is unmerited favor. They're just a little bit different. Grace is unmerited favor. God is extending his goodness towards us when we don't deserve it. That's grace. But mercy is when he withholds bad stuff from us. It's undelivered judgment. It's God actively withholding bad when he could deliver bad. That's mercy. And that leads us, when we experience grace and mercy, it leads us to this point of peace. We're finally at rest in our own soul because we have harmonious relationships and we know we're right before God. And that doesn't come from within. That doesn't happen on our own strength. We can't muster that up. We can't invent that. That comes from God. That's where that comes from. Go back to 2 Timothy 2. Where does this come from? It comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This trait does not naturally, we can't generate it ourselves. Mercy, like grace and peace, are divine. But when the kindness of God and the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of righteous things that we have done. No, no, no. Not because of righteous things that we have done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. It's because of his mercy. This is all from God. Dwight Pentecost in his book entitled Design for Living puts it this way, and I quote, Mercy is God's loving grace in action. Mercy is God's response to the misery, to the need of the one he loves. God loves not because the object of his affection is lovely and attractive to him. God loves because it's in his nature to do so. End of quote. I love that. It's in his nature to do so. So we praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because in his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So how does that, how does that jive with the justice of God? You say, okay, I want to be real merciful. People are going to plow me under where does the justice of God fit in? No, God is still just. He's still right. And here's the, here's the great news. You don't have mercy and you don't have grace if you don't have right and wrong. So the justice of God can never go away. It's eternal. And, and, it's, and God doesn't give up any amount of justice. But what he does do is he knows when he's ahead 33 to nothing, <laughs> unlike a high school quarterback. And he knows how to let off and give us some room to repent and to turn to him in faith. And so he maintains his righteousness 
and he chooses to show a little compassion. I love Psalm 103. Uh, if you're taking notes, just write, write this one down. Psalm 103. As far as high, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love and mercy towards those who fear him. It's how, it's how high his mercy is towards us. As high as the heavens are above the earth. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far he separates our sin. Whew, east to the west. Again, in Lamentations chapter 3, Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, put it, because of the Lord's great love, because of his great mercy, we are not consumed. We're not, you know, we're not taken over. His compassions never fail. They are, Jeremiah wrote, his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So where does this, where does this mercy come from? It comes from God. And so then the question comes, well, why should I be merciful? I mean, if this is from God, can I just receive it? End of story. No, we need to be merciful people because God has shown us what this mercy is because God has shown mercy on us in particular. His great love for us, Ephesians says, and God shows his great love for us who is rich in mercy. Get this? He is in the thick of it in mercy that he could make us alive in Christ. If you only had one reason to be merciful, it's that God has shown us mercy. That alone is enough of a reason. But that's not all. It's the expectation of, of Jesus. Jesus told a story of a guy who had a great debt. You know the story. And he, and he couldn't pay the debt. And the, the, the master whom he owed this debt to could take him and throw him in jail forever. Instead, the master says, well, I'll forgive you. The guy owed probably millions. Well, the guy who owed the debt, who'd just been forgiven of the debt, hit the street. And as soon as he did, he found a guy who owed him a few bucks, maybe 50 bucks. And he took him by the throat and he said, you pay me back now or I'll throw you in jail. Well, when the original master found out about that, he said, Matthew chapter 18, the master called that servant in and he said, you are a wicked servant. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have shown mercy on your fellow servants just like I did with you? And in anger, the master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he would pay back all he owed. Jesus said, this is how my Father in heaven, that heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive each other, your brother or sister from your heart. Now stop there. This master takes the guy owes him millions. He's forgiven it. He finds out the guy's choking another guy for 50 bucks. He pulls him in. He goes, you know what? I'm going to take my, my debt now. You're going to pay it. And because you can't pay it, I'm going to take you to jail. Get this now. This makes no sense. I'm going to put you in jail, and we're going to torture you until you pay the millions back. Now, I've never been to jail, but I don't think that's a place you make lots of money. I'm just thinking out loud here. How do you put a guy in jail until he pays it back? You'd be better off putting him on the job. But no, this guy says, no, you're going to go to jail, and we are going to, what's it say in the text? Torture you until you pay it back. Guess, guess how long the guy's in jail? Pretty long time. Pretty long time. And then what Jesus says is, that's what will happen to you if you don't forgive people. You know what? And this, I love this about Jesus he makes it so easy, and then in a moment, in a turn of a phrase, it's so hard. 
You must forgive. Okay, let it go. I forgive. And Jesus goes, that's not quite right. You must forgive from the heart. Oh my gosh. Can't do that. Why? Because I may want to go back on it someday. Right? Anybody else with a wicked heart? Just me. Okay, that's all right. Yeah, that's right. You're not going to raise your hand for fear. Yeah. Jesus knew what our hearts were like, and he knew we, we've got to be merciful. He, because God shows us this mercy, but that's the story of Jesus. That's the expectation of Jesus. And that's, he wants mercy to flow through us. You know what? If we would show some mercy, it's not that people would treat us better. It's that God would give us more mercy. There's a third reason we need to be merciful people. is because we're going to need mercy one day in the future. So we speak and act like those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. And if you don't memorize scripture, there's a phrase you can memorize. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs. You want that to be the crown. If you're, if you're going to err, err on the side of withholding judgment err on the side of letting go of the defense for the day of judgment, err on the side of being a little more merciful, let mercy rule, just let it rule. Because there'll be a day that you need it. There'll be a day that I need it. So how am I going to put this into practice? What's this going to look like? Well, long before Jesus was on the earth, and long before Jesus gave that sermon, God the Father, hundreds of years prior to this, he actually brought in the perfect illustration of that mercy. And he did it in a prophet by the name of Hosea. Um, Hosea is a small book in the Old Testament, way in the back of the Old Testament. I'll tell you this story. Hosea is a young, sharp, good-looking, smart, godly guy. Okay? He attracts to himself a woman who's a beauty. She's a doll. They get married. But she is less than infused, uh, uh, enthused with his journey, spiritual journey, to preach righteousness in the land. In fact, she may be bored with his campaigns. She just couldn't be bothered. And so she would flit and be busy when he would be out preaching. She did her thing. Hosea kept uh, strings on her by just wishing her back. You, you almost feel it in the text. And... And I wonder if there were moments if he thought, well, you know what, if we have a baby, maybe that will draw her heart back. And so they had one, and then they had two. And even with these children, she still wanted to go out with the high life. And Hosea was back preaching repentance and the kingdom of heaven and getting right with God and holiness. And that just was a bit of a bore for her. And so she would go out on the town, and she would get herself in trouble. So she'd come back late each time and each time later and later and eventually she didn't come back. And Hosea, the great prophet, is now preaching but he has to be home because he needs to take care of two little babies. Well, she gets herself in trouble in such a way that she spends all the money she has and then the only way she can earn her money is to, uh, to have some affairs, some encounters, she makes a little cash on the side, but gets further in debt and ultimately lands in the pit of prostitution. She gets down so low that she's going to get sold on the block. 
I mean, someone's going to own her now. This is how bad it's gotten for her. And she's at the point where she can't pay her own way. She can't dig herself out. There's no possible way. And you can imagine the beauty in her is now diminished because she's a worn out woman. No longer the spring bride that Hosea would have had. Hosea found out she was going up on the auction block for prostitution. And so he went to that section of town. You know what I'm talking about. And he went, and in that day, they would have put him on a block, literally, up on a block. And then they would have opened the bidding. And people would then buy this woman and take her home. Hosea went into that part of town, went there on the designated day she was up for sale. And then when her name came on and she entered, stepped onto the block, he pulled out his bankroll. And he paid off that whole debt and paid to buy his own wife. And then he took her home. And he said, and now I've earned the right to marry you. And I've earned the right, we've had children. And now I've gone to the street and purchased you back again. And so you'll stay here. And he could have killed her. No one would have batted an eye. He could have had her stoned by the town elders. He could have divorced her. He, had, he could do anything he wanted, really, because that was his property now. And instead, you know what we read in Hosea 6? I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I don't want your blood, he's saying. I don't need you to, I don't need you to die. What I want for you is mercy. Now, why am I telling you that story? Because hundreds of years later, Jesus would appear. And he would meet a guy by the name of Matthew. And Matthew would be a tax collector, which means he's a sellout to Israel. He's actually loyal to Rome. So his neighbors, his friends, his family, his own mother hates him because he's turned on everybody to make money. And Jesus will walk up to Matthew and say, hey, Matthew, follow me. And Matthew will leave his job, his income, and everything else, he'll leave it all and he'll follow Jesus. And at the end of the day, Jesus will say, I want you to follow me. And Matthew says, you know what? There's a party at my house tonight, Jesus. You want to come? And Jesus goes to the party and when he gets there, the house is full of people who are tax collectors, which are turncoats on Israel. They overcharge people. They're extortionists. They, they are like loan sharks. He takes, and Jesus goes into that party room and sits down and has dinner with them. <laughs> you could just imagine how that goes. So where were you? Well, you would never believe this. Can't imagine. Well, some Pharisees, that's the religious uppy-ups, they saw this happening. And they said to the disciples, hey, what is it with your leader here? He's hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. Now, I, I find there are humorous moments in Scripture, and this is one of them. They actually grab the disciples and go, what is it with your leader over there? He's, he's hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. Like, that's all one word to them. Like, you know, like bad people. And before they can respond, Jesus responds. I think this is really cool. He says, uh, hey, Pharisees, uh, sick people need me. I, I don't need to be here for the well people. I hear, I'm here for the sick people. And as if to say, you know, don't talk to the disciples about what I'm doing. You have an issue with what I'm doing, come talk to me. This is called Therapy 101 right here. Don't triangulate this thing. Don't make it more confusing. Don't talk about me. Come to me if you've got a problem. And 
And so the disciples, they hear this accusation, what's the deal, you're hanging with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus says, it's not the well who need help, it's the sick. And I came for the sick. And then he said, and by the way, guys, you don't get it, but if you knew the truth, and he said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Oh my gosh. He's quoting Hosea. He's hanging with the very guys. Now, by the way, Pharisees had never won, ever had won over a guy like Matthew. And on that night, here's this guy who, who wins over this crowd because he shows a little bit of mercy. Well, it doesn't end there. A few pages later in your Bible, you'll find another case where the guys are, the disciples are walking through a field and it's a Sabbath. A Sabbath is a Saturday, it's a sacred day. They, were, they had by law, there were only certain things you could do on that day. You could only walk so far. You prepped your meals typically on Friday and you would eat them on Saturday. There was just things they wanted to do to make sure the country shut down and rested. These guys, they're, they're transient. They're moving from one place to place and they've given up jobs. It's not a real secure situation. And so they're walking through a field and they see some grain. Could be like corn, our modern day corn. It could be like wheat, we're not sure. But they grab the tops of these grains and they pop them in their mouth. But it's the Sabbath. And the Pharisees stop them and say, again, hey, you guys are eating on the Sabbath. You're picking grain. That's against the law. That's, you know, you're violating the law. And you know what? By the technical side, yes, they were. But Jesus said, you really don't get it. And he began to tell them a story where this same thing happened under King David. And here's the problem. This, this Sabbath was for the Lord. And the Lord is here. It's, it's his day. And these guys aren't going to worship the Lord if they don't have food. Let them eat, for crying out loud, essentially in our vernacular. And he says, we're, we're made not for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath is made for us. And he said, and you wouldn't be saying this because he knew their hearts. He knew their hearts. And what was he saying? I desire mercy, not sacrifice. There it is again. It shows up again. I, I think about that and I think how well God puts his message together over hundreds of years and then Jesus quotes this act of mercy just in a phrase, and I'm sure they think of Hosea and this prostitute and buying her back and showing some mercy. And, and so that's where we begin this thing of, of how do we begin to demonstrate some mercy to each other? How do we do that? Well, let me give to you four conclusions that I have regarding this. Number one, you're taking notes. Number one, when we have opportunity for heavy-handed judgment, show some mercy. Even when I'm right, I don't have to exercise the full extent of my rights. I can hold off and show some mercy. Hosea could have dropped the axe on his wife. You know that, right? And he chose not to. He held back and showed some mercy. And you know what? I think ultimately he won his wife's heart. If he did not, do you know whose heart he won? His children's heart. Does that make sense? He, by what he did, he modeled for his kids how to treat another person with mercy. 
And you can do the same this week. When you have opportunity to really make your point, let up on the pedal a bit. Even if you're right, let some mercy show through. through. Let mercy really rule. When I have opportunity for heavy-handed judgment, let mercy rule. Show a little bit of mercy. Number two, when relating to sinners who are different than my sin, show some mercy. Now, stop there. You're saying, what do you mean by sinners who sin differently than my sin? What are you saying about me? Well, I'm saying about you that you're a sinner, okay? That should not be news to you. Okay, no one's nodding, but I'll let that go by. No one says, amen, preach it. No, we don't want to hear that. But you know what we do like? We do like to thump people who sin differently than we sin. Because I don't have that sin, therefore we can go long and hard on that one. Because I don't have that sin, so then we thump people with their sin and go easy on ours. But you see, when, I, when someone addresses my sin, I go, oh, show me some mercy, man. Let up. Does that make sense? We would really rather lather on the self-righteous, pompous kind of diatribe that is ours, but people had been doing that with Matthew for some time, and that never did win his heart. What won his heart was when Jesus said, follow me. I'll go to your house for dinner. I'll be, your friends with, I'll be friends with your friends. He showed some mercy. And when people sin differently than you do, and, and it will happen at work, when people are critical of something, they'll, they'll actually pile on, right? When people find something they don't like about you or about someone else, they'll pile on. And, and the, what's the answer to that? Show a little bit of mercy. Unlike the football team on Friday night that couldn't figure that out until the coach kind of redirected that. Let mercy shine. Let it rule. I encourage you, quite frankly, go spend an evening with some people that you disagree with on a regular basis that sin differently than you do. Demonstrate some grace. Withhold some judgment. When relating to sinners who sin differently than me, show some mercy. Thirdly, when people don't fit in or they demonstrate their quirks and they annoy me, just show some mercy. We all have our own irritating habits. They're not irritating to you. They're cute to you. They're irritating to others. And even as newlyweds, they're cute. Five years in, not so cute. Ten years in, please stop now or go to the garage, you know. People will try to control you with their quirks. When they find out you ha- that something bugs you, they'll actually use that on you as a way to push you away or a way to manipulate you. The, the Pharisees sawed the disciples on the Sabbath and they were picking grain. Quite frankly, you and I think, I think number one, they said, oh, we finally got them. They're breaking the law. That's number one. Number two, I sure wish I could get away with that. You know how they're jealous? And so they pick at it, but down deep, they wish they could do this too. And they wish their own hearts, and they had thought of it. And so they conjure up something, but down deep, they're just jealous or wishing that they had thought of it. So when people don't fit in, when they have quirks, or they demonstrate their own stuff, when they're just downright annoying, show some mercy, let it rule, back away. This, this appears most in our homes. Closeness can bring out the craziness. Uh, a good marriage is a marriage with two good forgivers. Okay, Because two imperfect people are not going to make a perfect marriage. And, 
and you can love and forgive each other and you will have a better marriage than if you annoy and quirk each other and don't demonstrate any mercy. What I find too is that close proximity really uh, announces the quirks, the oddities, don't, doesn't it? Uh, it's when you get really close. Anyone from a distance looks really good. The closer you get, that's when you begin to see the pimples in their personality, right? Yeah. I was thinking about that this week. Um, you know that Juan and I have uh, five kids, and we love them to the moon. I mean, just love them. And our, our life's been fairly family-driven. I mean, it's just, we, I, I like to do ministry, but before I'm a minister, I am a man, a godly man. I hope to be a godly man. And then a husband, and then a father. And then pastors down there somewhere, but not, you know, when I stand before God, I want to be a good dad, good husband. Well, when the kids were real little, we got the chicken pox, but not all at the same time. We got one, and then as that one cleared up, the next one started. And as that one cleared up, the next one started. And it was a long winter. We were in the house for like eight weeks. And I would come home from work, you know, it's a winter time, it's dark early. I pull in the drive. As I pull in the drive, I'd see my wife backing out. <laughs> Where are you going? Going to the store. Uh, it, it, was like, it, was, it was like the pilgrims on the Mayflower. You know how you've been on the boat too long? And you say, oh, oh, oh. You can only play so many games of shoots and ladders. You can only count the chicken pox so many times. And so help me. Sorry if this offends you. But if I hear... I love you, you love me. <laughs> so help me, if I hear that song, it drives the quirks right up to the front. You know what I'm saying? Whoa. I say to Juan, you're going to the store to get, and she, I don't know yet, but I'll be gone for a while. What, what is that about? I don't know. And it's that close proximity, and in. And those are people that I love. Those are people I really have invested in. But it's just a lot of closeness, isn't it? And, and so when that happens, that's when mercy has to really triumph over judgment. Now, as funny as that one is, let me give you one more. And this is just as funny as that one is, this is how much unfunny number four is. This is the one that's really hard. When people are critical of me, when people are just nasty, that's when we need to show mercy. You know, Christianity has had good days and bad. We've had good seasons in our lives and bad. Right now, it seems like when Christian ministries show up in the news, it's not a good story. And when people try to do things to ministers or with ministers or with churches or about churches and municipalities, and it seems like it's not going really well right now. And so when it hits the media, it's bad. Um, there's a guy who I respect in ministry. His name's Rick Warren. He's a godly pastor in Southern California. You probably read his book, The Purpose Driven Life. But he says, and it's, and it's a worldwide bestseller. I mean, it's up there with Reader's Digest and stuff. He openly admits, he said, one time I turned on the evening news and they were playing a clip from a comedian who was making fun of the book, Purpose Driven Life. But he wasn't making fun of the book. He was making fun of God. He said, I, I didn't know how to handle that. How am I supposed to handle that with mercy, with kindness, with love? Because they were really going after him. If you know anything about Rick and Kay Warren, they're, they've been married 
35 years or so, and they've, they've got a row of kids. And, but about a year and a half ago, one of the kids uh, shot himself, committed suicide. It was a sad day. It was a year and a half ago right now. It was an adult son of theirs who had suffered with depression all his life. Wanda and I had known about it for probably 15 years. And Matthew, I think, was 27 when he died. Um, Wanda and I knew about it because Rick and Kay were very open about it among pastors to say um, mental illness is, we don't know how, we don't have this figured out, we're getting him all kinds of help, but we just couldn't hold him together. And uh, there were days that Rick would say he'd stayed home just to study at home, sitting on the couch with Matthew, because there were days that Matthew would say, Dad, I just don't know if I want to live anymore. But here's the problem with it. After they went through the darkest day of their life, losing their son, you know what happened in the internet the weeks following? Horrible, nasty things were said about Rick and Kay Warren. At a moment, you would think there'd be some mercy, some kindness, a little bit of compassion. People were making fun of it and calling them into account, account for the way they raised their children or whatever. It was just nasty. And you see, when people are critical of you, that hurts, and that doesn't go away. And, and you, you feel that maybe the rest of your life because you know the story, sticks and stones may hurt my bones, words will never harm me. That's not true. Words will hurt you way worse than a sticker stone. When I was 12, I broke my arm. I don't think about my broken arm. I fell off a bike riding home from a pool one day. Fell off. I don't think about a broken arm ever. But, but words that it hurt me, they still hurt me a decade or two later. Now you say, well, can't you just grow up and get over it? I'm working on it, but I am a piece of work. Thank you for not amening that. <laughs> I just appreciate that very much. It's tough. And when people are critical of you, that's the time to show some mercy. Even when you have the right to step on their throats. Even when you could, you could go full throttle. Sure, it's 33 to nothing. We're still going to throw the long bomb. I, I find it really interesting. Honestly, when I read the stories of Jesus, every time I read them, I learn something new. But can you imagine... If you were out with Jesus that day, he's out in the field and, and the disciples pick some, some grain off and they're chewing it. And there's some Pharisees over here and they're, they're picking at him now going, hey, what's the deal? Your disciples are breaking the law. What's wrong with you, Jesus? Now, about that time, I would step in. If it were me and I was there, it's a good thing I wasn't. I would say something to the effect of, okay, I don't know if you know who he is, but he can make dead people come back to life, which means he could probably make live people. I don't know, but I wouldn't take a risk with this. And you can run, but he will find you. And you can get in a boat and go across the water. He can run on water. You're not going to get away from him. So I wouldn't be picking at his disciples. And if they want some grain, hey, let them have some grain. You, you, know, you, you load them up. I, I don't understand how anybody be, could be critical with Jesus. Does that make sense? I don't, I don't get that at all. And, but you see, critical people will just be critical, and they don't care who it's of. It just shows you the disregard. And it still hurts, but you still come out. You want to come out fighting and scrapping, especially when, when they're coming after our Christian values or things that we hold dear. 
and we want to stand for what's right, but even when we stand for what's right, and even when I, I stand and someone, someone says, you know, we want to do this, and I know that's not biblically right, I still remember the words of the Apostle Paul when he wrote to Timothy, and he said, once I was a blasphemer, once I held the coats for the guys who killed, killed the Christians, and I was a blasphemer, but God, it says in 1 Timothy, God had mercy on me. And I think, Dave, if God had mercy on them, then I could have mercy. I could let up. I could let it go. Well, one more story, and then we'll quit. The story is of uh, Abraham Lincoln. Uh, you know the story of Lincoln. Grew up in the Midwest, uh, lived in Kentucky, Indiana, eventually went to the house in uh, Illinois. Lost, very few people know this, lost more races than he won. I don't know if you knew that or not. Lost a lot of races, a lot more races than he won. Became president right at a time when the country was in turmoil. Went through a war he never wanted to have. That's his presidency. He's a security risk if there ever were one. And at the end of the war now, he goes to the balcony at the White House and he's going to make a speech on how he's going to keep the unity, how they're going to put this, reconstruct this country back. Can you imagine? He's praying to a God and going, God, show mercy on us and we don't deserve it. You can just imagine if you were the president, what that felt like. And so he laid out a speech of the reconstruction of the Union. And when he got done with the speech, a voice from the crowd came back that said, uh, what are we going to do with the rebels? What are we going to do with the rebels? And before Lincoln could say anything, the crowd began to scream, hang them, hang them, hang them. Well, Lincoln had a, uh, a little boy by the name of Tad. Tad's another great story. You should read the stories on him. He, he never really went to school. They, they'd bring school teachers in. They'd quit because his kid was smart and active and a holy terror. Uh, so he, he would, they would quit. They couldn't keep a teacher in the White House for him. He would bring pets in, animals into the White House. Um, his stories are told that, that uh, he would sit and talk to people that were waiting to meet the president. Then he would charge them to see his dad. <laughs> Is this a great entrepreneurial spirit or what? This is what America was made for. This is like a little eight-year-old kid. I, I just have all kinds of respect for the name Tad now, you know. But uh, Tad was standing by his dad in the balcony when his dad made that speech. And he heard, what are we going to do with the rebels? And he heard the wave, hang them, hang them, hang them. And he ran up to his dad, pulled on his dad's coat, as you could vision, visualize. You remember the coat Lincoln would have worn? He pulled on his coat and he said, Dad, don't hang them. Hang on to them. Hang on to them, Dad. And Lincoln leaned down and said, you're absolutely right, Dad. And that's what we're going to do. And isn't that what God did for us? We didn't deserve eternal life. We didn't deserve forgiveness. We didn't deserve a home in heaven. We didn't deserve second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth chance. Yet he still hangs on. And he could take us out back and let us go. I mean, cut us off. But in his rich mercy, he keeps hanging on. And that's all he asks of us. Not that people will treat us any better. They won't. They won't. Don't think for a moment. They, they will for a day, and then they go right back to their old habits. But you don't do it for them. You do it for the glory of the one who saved you. 
And he will, we sang it early, he will never let you go. It's a wonderful theme. So then you can be merciful. And as you offload that mercy onto someone else, God will fill your tank again with more. That's the kind of people we will be because it's the kind of, of, of Savior that we have who's in heaven. Amen? Amen? Let's bow for prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, um, we marvel at your grace, your forgiveness towards us. We recognize we need more doses of this mercy. Maybe you're seated and you say, I, I am one of those who's an outsider looking in. Dave, I don't have the Savior. Then open your heart right where you're seated. Just tell God, God, I know I'm a sinner. I, I need the mercy of Christ. I need the grace of Jesus in my life. I need to be forgiven, please. I trust him. Trust him with your heart. Believe on him to salvation. But for all of us, we need the mercy that only God can provide through Christ. And we need it for our own souls, for our own good. Regardless of what anybody else does with it, we need it for our own selves. Make us, I pray, people who know and love and embrace mercy, knowing that you'll just provide another dose the next day. You will never run out because you're rich in mercy. We will never be left out because you're rich in grace. And because of that, we enjoy incredible peace. Thank you. We thank you that you have put this together in a magnificent way. Your book is a wonderful story of how our lives could be. May we follow in closely, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.